You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. For, uh, for coming, thank you for having me, uh, bring me back to Seattle, it's always a real pleasure to come back. I taught here with Tom at CLU on and off for a couple of years, just after I left Queen's University in Belfast for my PhD, and um, yeah, it's great to be back, so thank you for bringing me, um, and uh, I'm certainly going to be tasking twice. Um, so what I'm going to be talking about uh, today is uh, what is fairly widely in the literature referred to as Britain's dirty war in Ireland. And um, I have a, a few introductory slides that I'm really, you know, basically we have four or five minutes, so I'll, I'll try and keep this relatively short so we can have a bit more discussion. There's been a lot of really good questions for the first two papers, so I want to try and continue that. So um, this is a mural from a Catholic nationalist area in um, North Belfast. Uh, yeah, it's a mural from the Ardoin. Uh, you can see, which one is the pointer, this one. Ten people from Ardoin were murdered by weapons aboard by the British government from South Africa by the agent Brian Nelson in January uh, 1988 to 1994. And uh, you see here at the mural the um, Police Service of Northern Ireland, formerly known as the Royal Ulster Constabulary, before that known as the Royal Irish Constabulary, before partition. And uh, on this side, a UDA Ulster Defence Association uh, beret, and uh, here's some of the weapons that were imported from South Africa. Uh, another mural also from West Belfast, collusion. Uh, this refers to the other main loyalist paramilitary of the Ulster Volunteer Force. An element of the UVF were covertly enlisted by the Ulster government at the of 10 shillings a day promote a sectarian war. And I'll be referring back to uh, this a little bit later. You see here somebody that at FTP, uh, are we swearing at this event? That means yeah. F the Pope. Um, and uh, that's a fairly common loyalist graffiti. So someone's obviously snuck into this area and added FTP to the mural, which was... Uh, where, sorry, where is this mural? This mural is in West Belfast. I think this is in Ballon Murphy. Um, if you're interested, there is there are a series of books called, um, I think it's called Drawing Supports. A lot of pictures of murals from the conflict. And these are a few slides I'm just going to skip through. It's a little bit of background for you. You know, we're, we're talk, trying to focus on a couple of major issues that are mostly relevant to British authoritarianism or authoritarian politics. So a few basic facts, um, a few dates and events you can look up if you're interested. Um, one thing, um, you know, both of the first presenters made mention of the issue of anniversaries. So the reason I put these two together, you notice this is out of sequence, is the 1916 Easter Rising, we just had the centenary commemorations, particularly in Dublin, but a lot of events across the United States as well, um, and the UK commemorating the Easter Rising. 50-year anniversary was roughly when the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association was gathering momentum. And uh, a few kind of reasonably significant uh, political events from the 1910s into the 1920s. The uh, 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty basically formed what we now know as the now we now know as the Republic and Northern Ireland, and um, 
one of the most significant issues that came out of these was uh, something that's quite relevant in the United States today, and that's the issue of gerrymandering. The uh, Protestant Union, I'll use these terms interchangeably, could actually stand here and talk about the difference between Protestant Unionist, Loyalist, Nationalist, Republican for quite a while, but um, basically the Protestant government in Northern Ireland effectively created a very favourable set of constituencies in Northern Ireland. And if you actually look at the Northern Irish constituencies, you know, Wikipedia pages, I don't tend to encourage my students to look at Wikipedia, <laughs> but when it comes to elections, it's kind of very central and it's very clickable. Um, you'll notice that the constituencies are kind of odd. It's like Fermanagh and South Tyrone, which is the constituency that the hunger striker Bobby Sands got elected to in 1981. It's not a particularly natural way to divide up Northern Ireland, but this is a product of uh, gerrymandering. So, um, a couple of things just to kind of put in your minds at the outset. Um, one of the things I'll be looking at particularly is the issue of state brutality or brutality on the part of state forces. The way that uh, people take ownership of this, and that's largely manifested in a number of inquiries and also calls for further inquiries into events in Northern Ireland. I think this is particularly relevant to, well, it's somewhat relevant to contemporary issues in the United States. You know, when I'm talking to my classes about issues like this, I ask them to think in the context of police shootings in the U.S., the way that they're responded to, who takes ownership of these shootings, who is the victim of this shooting, and what are the consequences of it. And it's definitely something that's worth bearing in mind. So, um, as I mentioned in previous slides, during the late 1960s, the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland, heavily influenced by the civil rights movement in the United States, started to gather momentum. And uh, a couple of major events from here, the, in October of 1968, there was a march in Derry, maybe known as Londonderry, depending on which section of the community you're talking to. Um, this caused significant violence in the city. We fast forward to the following summer, and again, I'm skipping over a lot. And the summer marching season, uh, this time on the part of the Loyalists, celebrating the, the uh, victory of the Battle of Boyne in 1690. Um, this, actually, the particular march was actually celebrating the Siege of Derry from 1689. This led to riots in Derry and... The Battle of the Bogside was, you know, significant communal violence that the Royal Ulster Constabulary wasn't able to get a handle on. So they requested the help of the British Army. Now, the British Army has a role as aid to the civil power. Now, during, you know, our lifetimes, that has included things like serving as garbage men when the bin men went on strike in the 1970s. Probably the most important or most uh, historically significant has been when they served as aid to the civil power in Northern Ireland. One uh, name to bear in mind when we think about British strategy in Northern Ireland is that of Frank Kitson. Now, Frank Kitson's actually still alive. He's 90 years old. Um, I tried to get an interview with Frank Kitson when I was working on my recent book on the British Army in Northern Ireland, but uh, at the time he was in his mid-80s and kind of got fogged off. Anyone's ever tried to get an interview with someone who's got a fairly controversial past, well, that'll be a familiar experience. But the important part of this is that Frank Kitson had experience in Britain's post-colonial wars. So the post-colonial conflicts, commonly known as Britain's small wars, there was, and hopefully in the future again will be, a really good website called britainsmallwars.com. It details every conflict the British Army was involved in from the end of the Second World War, basically up to modern day. It was undergoing maintenance when I tried to check it most recently, but that should be available to you again. There's a lot of resources there. 
in Kenya fighting the Mau Mau, Kitson was awarded the Military Cross, and he then ended up bar to that, fighting in Malaya. He was appointed as a brigadier in Northern Ireland in 1970. Now, there's a lot we can say about Frank Kitson, but he is the author of two books, one called Gangs and Counter Gangs in 1960, and one called Low Intensity Operations in 1971. So this one came out right after he was appointed as a brigadier. Um, Gangs and Counter Gangs is actually available. If you Google for it, you can download the PDF. Low Intensity Operations, you're probably relying on your library or copy of eBay for $300 or whatever. But both of these are very influential in British military thinking. Um, in Gangs and Counter Gangs, one of the things that Kitson suggested could be done in order to fight a conflict is creating a local support group that kind of exists, shall we say, on the fringes of the state forces. And uh, this is a useful way to kind of fight against insurgents. Low-intensity operations obviously happened after the conflict in Northern Ireland, or after Operation Banner, as the British called the conflict, had begun. But again, this tells you a lot about the way the British military were thinking to this time. So using his experience fighting the Mau Mau, he talked about creating this local gang or a covert militia, well-armed militia, if necessary, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> who could work alongside the police in particular. And um, basically, the view has developed, particularly within the Catholic nationalist communities, that this was the way that British forces and loyalist paramilitaries started to work together, and it was because of Kitson. The two major loyalist paramilitary groups are the Ulster, or were, are, were, um, the Ulster Volunteer Force, which uh, took its name from the Ulster Volunteers that were formed in 1912 to resist Irish Home Rule. They reformed during the mid-1960s, 1965 to 1966, and the Ulster Defence Association, which was formed from local vigilante groups about five years later. Uh, some useful literature on these groups, if you're interested in it. My friend Aaron Edwards has just uh, published a book on the Ulster Volunteer Force. Um, my uh, co-author, Ian Wood, has a really good book called Crimes of Loyalty on the Ulster Defence Association. Uh, those, are, those both should be available on Amazon or through... It was what those buildings called where you used to be able to go in and buy books. <laughs> you can't remember, yeah, but you should be able to find them if you're interested in them. And obviously, I'd be happy to answer questions at the end. Now, going back to Kitson, the, one of the most significant problems that Britain had when it arrived in Northern Ireland was this post colonial mindset when it came to dealing with conflict. Here's a long quote that's available in your packs, so I'm not going to read it. But basically, the idea that you get this is somebody who served in Northern Ireland from 1970 right through to the end of the conflict, or the end of the military operation in 2007. One of the things that you need to remember if you're thinking about you know, the US military, for example, is the way that certain conflicts can define the ethos of the military. You know, Britain has often thought that they've actually been fighting the previous conflict when they've arrived into a new conflict, especially during this uh, period of small wars. And, um, you know, basically, for people who were born around 1940 and joined the British military, Northern Ireland was the definitive military campaign of their careers. And it happened on British soil. You know, ideologically, perhaps some people wouldn't have agreed with that, but you know, de facto versus de jure uh, situation there. Um, another quote here refers to Aden. So this uh, was the operation in uh, the Aden Peninsula that ended in 1967. A lot of soldiers report that the equipment they had when they arrived in Northern Ireland, you know, they would have signs that on one side would say dispersal, we open fire, on the other side the same thing was written in Arabic. It was a sign that had come directly from Haven and been in storage since 1967. 
So you'll see things here like we have a particular style of imperial policing. We tended to regard the natives around the world as being our subjects, and if they were misbehaving, they should be clobbered and told to behave. So, you know, you've been a bad boy, you know, go home, we'll suffer for you. And of course, it was actually significantly more brutal than that. You watch any news footage from Northern Ireland in the early 70s. Another thing that's quite interesting is uh, the equipment that Britain had when they arrived in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, it's primitive, there was no special equipment, and you can see some issues of the conditions that they were arriving into. So basically, I think this quote really tells you the British Army were, you know, fairly unprepared to go into Northern Ireland. They didn't think this was going to be the longest single operation in British military history, and it was. So, you know, this quote kind of speaks to how unprepared they were at the time. Now, as aid to the civil power, the idea was the army were coming in to solve the problems that the Royal Ulster Constabulary couldn't solve. And this quote here gives you some insight into what they thought of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the, um, the Ulster Special Constabulary, which was dissolved right around uh, 1971, and then the Ulster Defence Regiment, which took over from the Ulster Special Constabulary. The sense was that they were very biased. Now, that's true. By the time you get to the late 1960s, it's a predominantly Protestant group. Okay, dealing with gerrymandering, dealing with Catholics being denied housing, dealing with Catholics being denied the votes, the civil rights movement, and basically the security forces were all perceived to be on the other side. Um, this part here, you know, I'm afraid I personally <laughs> didn't have a great deal of sympathy for them because I felt that it was time that things changed. That was just my first one thing. So basically this soldier... You know, you can never really tell. He might just be trying to give, give us a favorable impression of himself. But he's basically saying that what was going on was wrong, and I didn't agree with, with the way things were. But, you know, this was an interview from 2011. Okay, so, in terms of the strategy that Britain had and, and adopted during the early years of the conflict, there were three major occurrences that really drove um, recruitment to the Irish Republican Army. First was in 1970, July 1970, the false curfew. Did I send you the uh, Three Days in July documentary? Yes, yeah, so one of the documentaries that I sent to Tess, um, it's a multi-part documentary that's available on YouTube. I don't know like what Seattle Public Schools think about using stuff off YouTube. We're told not to do it because of copyright issues and I kind of don't really care. Um, but it's a multi-part documentary and it's interviewing people who were active around the time of the false curfew. So basically, a call came in saying there is an, an IRA, a Republican arms dump in this particular house in the, the Lower Falls, which is a Catholic nationalist area of West Belfast. And the British Army went in, they declared curfew, as was their want at the time. This was seen as something that was fairly useful. Four civilians killed, over 70 injured. So, fairly nasty few days in July. Um, 1971, internment without trial. This was enacted after soldiers started to be killed. In March of 1971, three Scottish soldiers were uh, abducted. Well, no, they weren't abducted. They were, um, at that time, British soldiers could drink in Belfast City Centre when they were off duty. And there were three soldiers. Two of them were brothers, 17 and 18 years old. They were, uh, they went with people from the, the bar in the centre of Belfast under what we believe was the promise of a party. And they were found the next morning at the side of the road with bullets in their heads. And the, the uh, consensus is that they'd stopped to relieve themselves at the side of the road. And uh, the people who'd driven them there took advantage of the situation and killed them. 
That actually changed British policy towards the age of deployment. The 17-year-old was uh, considered too young to serve in Northern Ireland at that point, and uh, the two, the 18 and 17-year-old, were brothers, John and Joseph McKay. Um, so after this, there were calls, you know, we need to be more aggressive. We need to do something about the problem of the IRA. Um, those of you who follow American politics, which is unavoidable for anyone, you probably, um, you know, the idea of uh, preemptively acting against particular communities, this is something that, uh, you know, we talked about in the UK as well after the Manchester bomb, you know, internment, because it worked so well in Northern Ireland in 1971, why don't we do it again? Um, the arrest and imprisonment without trial of suspected, quote, terrorists, unquote. 342 people were arrested. Uh, sorry, were arrested in the first round, and significant violence came with it. 20 civilians, two area volunteers, two soldiers were killed um, during the first uh, two nights, August 9th, 10th, 1971. As a result of internment, protest movement that had existed and kind of dwindled somewhat, um, was re you know, civil rights, the civil rights movement rather, was kind of re-energized, and then anti-internment marches started to take place across Northern Ireland. At the end of January 1972, a march was arranged for Derry. By the end of the day, 13 people were dead, one was fatally injured. The regiment that had um, been responsible for security in Derry on that day was the Parachute Regiment, one of the more aggressive regular units of the British Army. They are considered special forces, but they are part of the regular army. Um, the Parachute Regiment was the last regiment to withdraw from Aden in 1967. A lot of the soldiers who were in Derry on Bloody Sunday had served in Aden. So they were coming from a particularly aggressive regiment. They had re relatively recent experience in a post-colonial conflict when you were dealing with, you know, non-British people, shall we say. Um, as, as one of the, as another soldier puts it, based on his experiences in Aden, you know, Nasty, flea-bitten chaps, all of them. Um, and um, basically, they, uh, they shot 13 civilians dead. As you might expect, this just... Um, you know, the community was outraged, right? What happens when you are ineffective against terrorism, you actually create more terrorism. 480 people were dead by the end of 1972. Um, one of the one of the operations that was discussed, if you go to uh, if you go to the National Archives in the UK, you can see the papers for Operation Folklore. This was Britain's effectively their doomsday plan. What happens if things get worse? The idea was that they would flood the province with troops and authorize shoot on sight. You know, see someone's suspected terrorist, you can open fire on them. You don't necessarily need to be holding a gun or a petrol bomb or whatever. You can just open fire. You can imagine what that what kind of chaos that would have caused. Bloody Sunday, to kind of, um, I guess, flip back for a second to uh, the way Britain's taking ownership of this. In uh, 2010, the Savile Inquiry, the Bloody Sunday Inquiry report was published. The then Prime Minister David Cameron apologised for the actions of the Parachute Regiment in Derry. Um, you can go online to, I think, bloody-sunday-inquiry, or you can just Google Bloody Sunday Inquiry, Savile Inquiry report. It's a huge volume, you know, testimony from people including Frank Kitson, including um, this person, Soldier F, who was one of the main culprits on Bloody Sunday, killed four people and uh, shot two others. Uh, you can read their testimony. Um, and basically, this uh, inquiry was announced when Tony Blair became Prime Minister in 1997 and eventually published this report in 2010. 
So uh, you can kind of get a sense of what was going on at that time, or you know, alternatively, you can read some of the, the myriad literature, the myriad literature that's available. So, despite this all having happened in 1972, if we fast forward, and I am glossing over a lot of stuff that happened necessarily. Uh, shoot to kill operations. Uh, shoot to kill is a perhaps deliberate strategy, or allegedly deliberate strategy. It really came into effect in the 1980s. In November, December 1982, uh, members of the Royal Ulster Constabulary killed six Republican paramilitaries. In May of 1987, eight IRA volunteers who were on an operation were killed by the SAS, the Special Air Service. The SAS had deployed to Northern Ireland in 1976 in response to rising sectarian violence, particularly in the border region, South Armagh. And in March of, uh, March of 6, 1988, three IRA volunteers were killed by the SAS in Gibraltar. Now, this is what was happening at Loch Gaul. This is a police station here, a part-time police station. The IRA were using this van here and a digger, the remains of which you can't see because it's been detonated. What they were doing was they were trying to create zones of liberation around Northern Ireland where you go into temporary or sorry, part-time police stations, destroy them. That means the security forces can't operate there, particularly in the border areas where IRA snipers were working. It wasn't safe for troops or police officers. So effectively, you're creating what they call zones of liberation. Uh, what they did was they had a bomb in the bucket of the digger, they drove into the police station, and then they opened fire, and the assumption that anyone might, might be there would be killed. Um, the British had intelligence this was happening. The SAS had, I think, 60 soldiers in the area, and they were massacred. All eight of them, no security casualties, all eight IRA volunteers were killed, and one unfortunate civilian who stumbled into the area that the army felt they couldn't warn because it might you know, indicate that an operation was happening. This is their Toyota van. Something in the region of, I think, 300 rounds of ammunition were found in that van. Gibraltar, the following year, uh, the IRA were planning to bomb the changing of the guard at the governor's mansion in Gibraltar. And uh, as the... Um, the volunteers were walking away from the car that were parked next to the governor's mansion. The SAS uh, just shot them dead. Death from the Rock is another link that I sent to you all. That's a 19, I think from 1988. It's a documentary about it. You, you learn a lot more about the operation and the controversy. Sorry, you say controversy or controversy? I can never remember. <laughs> anyway, um, this set off another sequence of violence. At the funerals for these volunteers here at Milltown Cemetery in West Belfast, a loyalist paramilitary. Uh, in other photos, you can see him. I think he's kind of behind this cloud of smoke in this picture. Uh, he threw pipe bombs and stuck open fire at the funeral. The people of the two people that he killed, um, one of them was buried about a week later. And then this happened here. Two British soldiers were monitoring the funeral procession at the same cemetery and inexplicably drove into the crowd of mourners. They were captured, you can see them here being captured, taken off into a back alley and were both executed. So at this point, again, we think we're perhaps on the verge of uh, Northern Ireland descending into even more violence. So, alongside Shoot to Kill, collusion was one of the major, uh, major issues at this time. Basically, going back into the 1960s, there were major issues with the B Special Unit of the Ulster Special Constabulary and they were disbanded at that time. A quote from Brigadier Ritchie, Charles Ritchie was a former member of the Royal Scots who became the Brigadier of the uh, UDR. He was the last Brigadier actually before they were in turn disbanded 
and fall into the Royal Irish Regiment. And again, another quote here, you can see that you know, perhaps we hadn't got the best people into the UDR. The, one of the major issues that we had was, or that, that existed, was that uh, members of the Ulster Defence Regiment were collaborating with Loyalist paramilitaries. And perhaps the most significant gang here, and this map here gives you a sense of how close uh, Northern Ireland and Scotland actually are, going back to my very first slide, was a group called the Glen Anne Gang. Now, Glen Anne is a very, very small town in a very nationalist, republican part of Northern Ireland here. Some of these names, anyone's familiar with the conflict, places like Cross McGlen, Cully Hanna, Newton Hamilton, um, Camlock, Jonesboro. You know, these are areas where the IRA was very strong. And, you know, to sidetrack for a second to uh, issues of Brexit, a lot of the properties here straddle the border. So if you're an IRA operative, you're on the run from the British Army, you can just run into a barn across the border. There's nothing the security forces can do, um, especially if you're on a sympathetic property. So the members of the Glen Anne gang, as you'll see here, RUC, RUC, UDR, UDR, this group was involved in a number of atrocities. Perhaps the most significant of these was the uh, Dublin and Monaghan attacks in May of 1974. This was the deadliest day of the conflict. They killed 33 people. They planted bombs near the main train station in Dublin at Rush Hour. A number of those devices detonated in a very coordinated manner, a manner that wouldn't be typical of loyalist attacks. Uh, July 1975, the Miami show bands were executed. They were pulled over at a UDR roadblock, and the loyalist paramilitaries who were part of this gang placed a bomb into their van with the idea that the van would blow up and everyone would assume that actually these were IRA agents. And then in January 1976, they killed the Reveen O'Dowd families, and this was one of those killings I referred to earlier that prompted the deployment of the SAS to Northern Ireland. Here's an image of the Dublin bomb. Anyone who's familiar with Dublin, if you're standing looking at this, Connolly Station is right here, and there's a mural right around here to the, the bomb, the victims of the bomb. Alongside this, you have on the Ulster Defence Association side, you have the UDA shopping list. And this was a number of high-profile nationalists and Republicans that the UDA wanted to kill. And again, there were issues that perhaps the British uh, were colluding with and were helping them to achieve this. So uh, you might be, you might have heard of Bernadette Devlin. She was uh, until Mary Black was elected in uh, 2015. She was the youngest member of parliament of Westminster since like the 1800s. Um, she married and uh, Bernadette Mikalski. And when the, uh, the UDA attacked her and her husband with her children in the house, I hasten to add, they were immediately arrested outside, which suggested that, well, the British must have known they were going to do this and they perhaps were just letting it happen. Uh, they also nearly killed Jerry Adams, the president of Sinn Féin, in 1984. He was appearing at court in Belfast, and as he drove along the back of Belfast City Hall, a car pulled up alongside him and uh, shot him several times with allegedly tampered um, ammunition. The most famous case, though, perhaps was that of Pat Finucane, who was a lawyer that represented a number of IRA clients. A uh, member of parliament from Grantham, Douglas Hogg, in January 1989, reported uh, that he was concerned that some solicitors in Northern Ireland were unduly sympathetic to the cause of the IRA. Now, how do you define the cause of the IRA? That's obviously a matter of discussion. Is it political violence? Is it killing people? Or is it the unification of Ireland? 
Uh, Pat Finucane was killed at his home less than a month later. This killing prompted an, a further inquiry on the, uh, led by Sir John Stevens, who at this point was the Deputy Chief Constable of the Cambridgeshire Police. And he produced three reports into collusion between the British states and uh, loyalist paramilitaries. This is a long quote, and again, I'm not going to read this on your slides, but basically the key part is right here, collusion is evidenced in many ways, and crucial information was withheld, important evidence was neither exploited nor preserved. And the rest of the quote really details the problems that existed in Northern Ireland. One of the consequences of this was that um, a centre was created called the Pat Finucane Centre, which operates in Derry. They've recently produced two quite interesting books on collusion, which you might be interested to read. One is called Lethal Allies, and one is called State and Denial. Um, again, those should both be available on Amazon. Um, Anne Cadwallader wrote Lethal Allies, and Margaret Irwin, with a U start, wrote State and Denial. And these are the, um, this is research funded by the Pat Finucane Centre. Freedom of information requests have gone into the British archives, and they basically tried to discover the extents of collusion between the, um, the British state and loyalist paramilitaries. A couple of other consequences include the historical inquiries team that the, Royals, the, sorry, the Police Service of Northern Ireland sets up, looking into controversial killings. The police ombudsman has been looking into killings involving the police, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, and the PSNI. And I suppose just a couple of points to conclude on, that uh, it's quite interesting to look at the history of inquiry when it comes to divided societies. You know, in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I mean, you can watch the proceeds of that, hours upon hours of uh, trials and hearings. It's, it's all available on, uh, on YouTube. Um, it's not all, you know, cats juggling. Um, and um, there's, there's been discussions of whether or not there should be some kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Northern Ireland. So, the dealing with the consequences of an authoritarian past, does this mean that the state needs to fund inquiries? Well, if the state's funding it, who's paying for it? You know, taxpayer. The, um, after the Sal inquiry, resistance to further inquiry, particularly because there have been no inquiries into Irish Republican Army actions during the conflict. So resistance started to grow as a consequence of that. And there's also, uh, to follow on from, um, you know, to, to go back to Brexit for a second, there's also a very important issue of uh, where does money come from? You know, peace money, P-E-A-C-A with capital letters, has been coming from the EU to the tune of 1.3 billion euros to Northern Ireland. That's going to go if Britain actually leaves the European Union. So that means that it's going to be incumbent on the British government to fund even, even more money into Northern Ireland to make up for that shortfall. Can't just fund our NHS. Anyone, everyone's familiar with the red bus, let's fund our NHS instead. Can't just fund the NHS. And most recently, following the relative disaster of the general election for the Conservative Party, uh, having to go into partnership with the Democratic Unionist Party means that Britain is no longer an objective actor in Northern Ireland. They're now engaged with one of the parties. And this party has called for an end to inquiries. It's called for controversial Orange Order parades to be allowed to pass down the streets that they previously been walked through. So there are a number of questions that remain as to how we continue to develop this process of truth and reconciliation in Northern Ireland. And um, I'll uh, take any questions that you have. Thank you.